Hello, I'm Alex Meyerhofer. And I'm Paul Meyerhofer. Welcome to Job Talk, the podcast where we give you an inside look at interesting jobs and how to get there. Today we speak with Jim Burroughs, one of the nation's top environmental and land use lawyers, and most recently a senior partner in Alan Matkin's LLP. Jim's responsibilities include development of permitting strategy, managing environmental consultants and engineers, negotiations, and appearances before various permitting agencies at all levels of government. How are you doing today? I'm great, you guys. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do in your job? Well, you pretty much already nailed it. I work with clients to help them get authorizations and approvals to build development projects. And and usually what I work on almost exclusively, or I used to work on, I'm, I'm retired as of a couple of weeks ago, but what I used to work on is really kind of big projects, big development projects. Like did a lot of work for a major telecommunications company over the years, and they would bring fiber optic cables across the Pacific Ocean from Japan or China or Southeast Asia and land them in California. And they would need all kinds of permits and approvals to be able to land those cables at a landing station at various spots up and down the California coast. So it's that kind of thing or major residential development or major office campus development that that I specialized in. Do you find your job challenging? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's challenging because essentially what I'm doing is I'm trying to get interested parties, including government permitted agencies, to, to say yes, to say, yes, that's a good project. Yes, you're approved. And we have no, no more objections. And, you know, when I was, it's, essentially, it's, it's a, it's a, I'm an environmental law lawyer. And so these are all kind of environmental permits and conditions that I'm dealing with from, you name it, we, we deal with it. And when I was in, in, in law school, I kind of thought that I'd be spending most of my time with interested parties like the Sierra Club and others who have a, a real interest in the kind of work that I'm doing or would be doing. But, but and d- definitely deal with those kind of parties, including fishermen and Native Americans and all the rest of them. But really, I would have to say 90, 85% of my work is with staff at government permitted agencies. And so the challenge in working with government permitting agencies is to get them to say yes when they're not motivated by money, like another private company would be. They're not even threatened by the threat of a lawsuit because if they get sued, then somebody's going to defend them. So basically what you have to do is convince them on the merits of whatever it is that you're proposing and to the extent that there is law that comes to, to play to use leverage, you know, the law in your favor to get them to say yes. And how often do you fail in this or find yourself in a tricky uh, situation? Yeah, it's a great question. So here's, here's what I tell clients, which is that the big development projects hardly ever, ever get denied. What happens though, is that it can take a long time and a lot of money and uh, a lot of commitment to get a project approved. And when I mean a long time, it could be 10 years, for example, to get you know, a really big new residential uh, development project approved, for example, with hundreds or even thousands of homes and, and that kind of a thing. So it's not so much that in the end that projects ever get denied or that those who oppose the project might ever actually flat out win in their opposition. It's really more of a situation where the 
client or whomever it is that's behind the project, you know, loses patience, loses money, and pro more projects die by attrition than by, far more projects die by attrition than by up, outright denial. So do you like your job? Yeah, well, what I like most about it is the challenge because what it involves is, you know, the classic thing, which is what lawyers do, which is to take, you know, figure out what the law is, figure out what the facts are of whatever it is that you're dealing with and put the law and the facts together in a way that advance the interests of, of your client. And so it's, it's challenging to do that. And it's challenging to do that in a way that it's successful and actually gets you to the point where you can declare victory. So that's, that's, it's the challenge more than anything else that I find interesting about, about the job. In what circumstances do you work as part of a team? My focus really was big projects. And so we work with a team of people and there might be three or four other lawyers that are involved from my former law firm, for example, depending on the client, maybe a lawyer with the client itself, an in-house lawyer. Then on top of that, you've got the, the business director, the, the business interest that is trying to get the, it's conceived of the project, it's trying to get it approved, plus architects, engineers, civil engineers, biological consultants, cultural historians, all the experts that you need to bring to bear in kind of a cohesive pointed way in order to get projects approved and dare I say timely approved. Again, probably more than anything else, it's it's the time to get these projects approved that is the controlling factor, even more so than money sometimes. So it's 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 bringing together a team of all kinds of you know various disciplines together to to get to a collective yes on what it is that you're proposing to do. As a kid, did you see yourself becoming a lawyer? I did not. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I think as a kid, I, 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 I think I saw it as kind of a selling out, you know, to, to, to the establishment. And in fact, in college, when I was a senior in college, I took the LSAT, which is the exam to get into law school. And I took it only because I felt, you know, compelled to do so since it had been kind of expected of myself or from my family or whomever that I would be taking it all those years. And, you know, I distinctly remember the night before taking the LSAT, the LSAT in college, that I stayed up, you know, playing poker and drinking beer till three o'clock in the morning. Well, so when my LSAT results came out, they were pretty poor and it did not do well. But I didn't really mind. As a matter of fact, I shouldn't have taken it, you know, in the first place because I had no interest in going to law school. And so what was I, 21 years old or something? And it wasn't until I was 28 years old that I happened to be visiting my sister at the UCLA campus and walked in front of the law school and was watching the uh, students going in and out of the law school when, you know, for me anyway, I had kind of an epiphany, geez, maybe I do want to go to law school. And then I studied for the LSAT and did well on it and went to law school and the rest is history. But yeah, no, it, you can call me a late bloomer that way. Yeah. So what kind of education do you need for your position? As a lawyer, undergraduate degree and a law degree and uh, a four-year degree in undergraduate degree in anything, and then a three-year, or in my case, I went to night school, Georgetown night school, which is three and a half or four years, depending on how, how quickly you do it. And, and then to be a lawyer, you have to pass uh, a bar exam. So in fact, what I've always told lawyers, there's, there's kind of three different stages to being a lawyer. 
One is to be in law school. One is to study for and to take the bar exam. And the, and the third is to actually practice law. And I, you know, I used to say somewhat flippantly that those three things really have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> but that's not quite true. But studying for the bar, for example, is at least you know how to do it having gotten in law school. But there's not much that you've learned in law school that it can actually help you answer the questions for the bar until you study for the bar. Yeah. Do law schools specialize in specific types of law, or is it more of a general program? There's tax law, there's bankruptcy law, there's labor law, there's corporate law, there's labor law, there's there's slip and fall, you know, law, there's criminal defense, all of that, you know, or criminal prosecution, all of that, are different types of law. And answer, I might be the wrong person to to answer that question because when I went to law school in the '80s. My sense was that there wasn't as much specialization as there purports to be now. There are, for environmental law, for example, there are a couple of law schools that are kind of known to be environmental law focused. The Vermont School of Law, the Lewis and Clark uh, School of Law, for example. I don't know that that's their official names, but but, but I, I'm kind of biased in this view, though, because, I mean, I'll tell you guys what I've told young law students from the beginning, which is that it really doesn't matter in my mind what you study in law school. It's three years in law school or three and a half years in law school. And, and what you're learning in law school is how to be a lawyer. And that's that's what counts. And whether or not you turn that into being a tax lawyer or environmental law lawyer or working for the district attorney's office and prosecuting criminals or whatever it is that you do, corporate law, it really gets back to just the basics of how to be you know, a good lawyer. And that's what you learned in law school. Did you find what you learned, did it translate well to actual practice? To some degree, yes. Not to get technical, but there's you know, uh, a part of law called administrative law, which has to do with statutes, rules, and regulations. And that was helpful to me in, in law school. But generally speaking, what law school did for me, and I think, I think for, for most people, they said it helps you to think like a lawyer. And really importantly, it helps you, and this is critical, to know how to research, read, and write like a lawyer. As you came out of uh, law school, what about environmental law appealed to you instead of like tax law or the other types of law you mentioned? Yeah, sure. And that's it's, it's a very understandable question. It's not quite applicable to me because I did go to night law school. And what I was doing in my 20s was I was working on uh, Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. I was working for uh, then U.S. Senator Pete Wilson, and I was responsible for environment and energy kind of issues. So I'd already been working by the time I went to night law school for maybe four or five years in the field of environmental law and policy. So continuing in in that field was just kind of a natural outgrowth of where I started working around the Hill even before I went to law school. What have you found most helpful in terms of furthering your career so far? Clients, getting new clients. <laughs> I worked at a private law firm and I was, I was a partner there for 20 years. And if you're the kind of lawyer that walks, wants to work for a private law firm and you're the kind of lawyer that wants to be a partner, it's a, it's a business and, and you have to have clients in order to make your, your, your business work. And to the best way to get ahead in a law firm, in a private law firm, or as a private lawyer, is to have clients. It's not the only way to get ahead, and, and it's not even a necessary way to get ahead or to 
succeed with a law firm, but it's definitely the easiest way to, to, to advance yourself. So how are law firms typically organized? It's evolving a little bit. And I mean, let me just say that even though I was working for two, two major law firms in the course of my career, I never really got closely involved with law firm management. And that's a whole you know, business in and of itself. But just generally speaking, in a typical private law firm, you know, larger law firm, you have partners who have an equity interest in the profits and losses of the, of the law firm. And you have non-partners, usually called associates, for example, who are attorneys who are helping, you know, working with clients, helping the partners do what is necessary to, to make the practice a successful practice. And then there's also a category of, of non-lawyers called paralegals. Paralegals actually, some, some of them have JDs, the Juris Doctorate, which is the degree that you get when you go to law school. They help to collect and keep tabs of things and research things and know how to file documents with agencies, with courts. And I mean, they're, they're really invaluable. And then beyond that is generically staff, administrative assistants, filing clerks, back office people, receptionists, and that kind of a thing. And do you think in five or 10 years, will all of these roles be replaced by some sort of AI or robot? Certainly a lot of the processing, especially having to do with litigation, is currently already being replaced by different forms of artificial intelligence, that to, to, to have a computer to go through a stack of documents and look for words and pull out words and pull out phrases and pull out names and that kind of a thing, which a paralegal or associate you know, would have to be doing if, if the machine didn't do that. Financing, I think that has become financing of, of major lawsuits and defenses against lawsuits and that kind of thing. I think that has become much more technical technologically driven, but what, what the value that ultimately that lawyers, I think, bring to clients is to be able to strategize, how do we get from A to B? How do we, how do we defend you against this charge? How do we prosecute on behalf of the government, this criminal over here? How do we help this major telecom company get a permit to build a, a uh, or lay a cable across the Pacific Ocean? And so I have to do for you guys, I don't know where AI stands in, you know, being able to uh, strategize on things like that, but that's, 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 that's ultimately what AI would have to be doing in order to, I think, be able to replace attorneys in the, in the, in the, in the and to be able to advocate as an attorney would be able to advocate. Do you see your profession staying relevant, maybe increasing in relevance or decreasing in relevance over time? Staying very relevant. Absolutely. And so environmental, just to give you one example, as, as, as we've been talking, I'm an environmental law lawyer. Environmental law is based uh, here in the United States, mostly in statutes and laws, laws that are passed by Congress, uh, laws that are enacted at um, state level and laws that are enacted at local levels. That's a, as opposed to common law, which is, you, you know, you go out and you hurt somebody unintentionally or intentionally, or let's say unintentionally, and you can be liable for that, for that hurt. There's, it's, it's, but, but for statutory law, because we are a nation governed by the rule of law and 
as long as we are that nation, there will always need to be lawyers to be helped to write those laws, repeal those laws, amend those laws, and then ultimately to interpret those laws, which is what people like me do. Where do you see yourself specifically going? That's, a, no, that's actually, that's a fair question. And I'm not sure that I'll be continuing to practice law, but I haven't ruled that out. The only thing I, I won't be doing is private practice law, maybe nonprofit law-related work, maybe even government-related work, maybe teaching, who knows, but but not the private practice of law that I've been doing you know, for most of my career. Do you recommend private practice to other people? I do. I do. I recommend it to, to, to people that, you know, like to problem solve. But problem solving in the sense of, geez, we got a difficult issue to deal with here and we got lots of interested parties. How are we going to solve this particular problem? And if that's of interest to you, then yeah, I'd recommend that to anybody. And, and, and especially if you have, you know, some kind of ability to, to empathize. Because it's hard to, I think, resolve issues and, and solve problems unless you can at least understand where all of the other sides are coming from and, and could, could somewhat empathize with what they're coming from. That, that can help you to, to get to some kind of a, a middle ground that, that works for, for everybody. Do you ever find your own morals conflicting with something that you're hired for? Yeah, that's a good question. And so I have to think about that. I don't, I don't think so. It's not, not the work that I ever did. No, I've, I've worked with, I've worked on behalf of clients that uh, some people may find objectionable, including, you know, a major oil company, for example. Some people might not want to work for a major oil company as a client. But, but in terms of what I am specifically asked to do, no, because generally what I'm asked to do and the, my practice was to help clients comply with environmental laws and, and in, in a way that hopefully works for the client. But the point is, so I'm, I'm more of a, ultimately a compliance counselor that helps clients figure out what they need to do to get through and either get a permit issued or get a issue resolved, you know, that has been raised by the agency or something like that. So what is something not a lot of people know about your job? I haven't bought a suit or a tie for 20 years. And obviously, if you go into court, which I rarely did, or if I go before a city council or a, or a county board of supervisors or a federal or state agency, you know, I might wear a blazer, but not even a tie necessarily. But day to day, you know, wear you know, T-shirts and shorts. But downtown San Francisco, where I worked, is, uh, and it's been that way for a long time. So as I say, this probably isn't much of a surprise to, to many, but we, we don't dress up anymore. Did you mostly work with uh, review paperwork or did you meet with your clients and just and, brainstorm and discuss? Yeah. Yep, I do all of that. The brainstorming, the discussing, meeting with the clients. A lot of it because of technological innovations has shifted from in-person meeting to a lot of video conferencing, a lot of conference calls, a lot of emails. That's probably how I did. 95% of my work for the last 15 years. But, but a, lot of the, a lot of my interactions are with all the federal, state, and local government agencies that have jurisdiction over my client's interest. And so that's, those, those are the people that I interact with in terms of representing my client's interests, as opposed to having to go to court and be in front of a judge. I, I don't do that, but I'll go to the 
the county of city and county of San Francisco, for example, and work with the staff there to resolve some kind of an issue or get some kind of a permit. What outside of school had the biggest influence on your career? The biggest influence on my career that turned out not to be an influence, I was working on Capitol Hill when I decided to go to night school, Georgetown Law Night School. And what I wanted to do was to work in a uh, presidential administration at the time it would have been President Bush, H.W. Bush, or you know some job like that. But what I felt that I needed at the time, I felt like I needed a, a JD, a law degree on my resume to give me that extra plus to put me in a position to, to take that kind of a job. And, and then I went to law school and I found out that I enjoyed law school much more than I thought it was, though it would. It was a lot of fun sitting in a class with all of these other basically nice students you know, guys and gals that worked on the Hill in the government for the White House, for the IRS or whatever, you know, all the different places you can work in, in DC with really interesting professors. And, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was really engaging uh, for me in law school. And then afterwards to start with a law firm that I never thought that I would actually ever work for a law firm and found that I enjoyed that and the work that I was doing more than I thought I would. So the point is, I went to law school for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> and I ended up being a lawyer for pretty much all of the normal and right reasons. So I don't know if that's, I, it, was, it was kind of a counter influence, I suppose, if you had. I was, I was influenced to go for the wrong reasons, and it turned out, you know, to be good in the end. So how do you get compensated? Sure. So I had a private law firm of, you know, medium to large size, which is the kind of law firm that I was at. We work for clients, clients pay their bills, and then we have obviously expenses, salaries to pay the associates, the money that and we have to pay the staff and the leasing the office and all of that. And then anything that's left over, the profits, and that's what a partnership was all about, <clears throat> is that the partners divide, get their share of the profits every year. <clears throat> so every year we have you know X amount of profits and then we divide that uh, amongst the partners in a, in a kind of a convoluted way. We divide that amongst the partners, and that's how we get, that's how we get compensated. It's actually fairly predictable. And at my former law firm, I would say you know, 19 out of 20 years, we always made you know a little bit more money than the prior year. So there was always more profits to divide up, and 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 for planning purposes, it was somewhat predictable to know how much money you know that I'd be entitled to you know for the upcoming year. And is that because you're selective with your clients or like, do they find you? Can you afford to be selective with your clients? Yeah. Again, that's another tough question. And, and the answer is, well, the official answer is we work with a very select group of clients. <laughs> but the, the, the real answer is that we would not work for a client that we didn't think could pay us. We did, would not work for a client that we didn't, could not think, would not think that they could work with us in good faith. You know, we're, we're not out there to be used or abused. And the, our billing rates, you know, at my former law firm are high or relatively high. So it's, you know, the kind of client that is going to want to come in and talk to us about using us, you know, is already the kind of client that is, you know, generally able to pay a higher kind of billing rate than they, they might otherwise. Rarely we have to essentially fire a client, but that, that happens. You know, 99% of the time, they're good clients and who pay their bills and, and makes it fun and interesting to work with. 
How much do lawyers generally make and how does that differ from different fields of law? Well, how much as to how much lawyers generally make, um, lawyer as a class of employment is a very broad, large yeah. range. And now again, now you're getting into a, you know, a question that I'm probably not the best person to answer that. But I would say that, you know, lawyers can make anywhere from $60,000 a year to $10 million a year. It's a wide range of potential compensation. There's government lawyers, lawyers that work for the district attorney, which, you know, is the usually the county or this, the, the county organization that prosecutes criminals, or for the federal Department of Justice, which prosecutes federal crimes, or the public defender's office, which defendants that otherwise uh, aren't capable of paying for their own defense, or working for a government for the local city or the local county or the state of California. Those lawyers generally make less than private sector lawyers. And in private sector, there's three different kinds of private sector lawyers. One is the kind of lawyer that I was working for a law firm, working for clients. Another is a lawyer working in the, call it the nonprofit sector, environmental advocacy, for example. And then another type of lawyer is the lawyer that works for companies themselves, so-called in-house lawyers. So take a big Silicon Valley company like Apple, for example, they would have a, let's say they would have a couple hundred lawyers that work at Apple itself and their, their employer is Apple, as opposed to a law firm that gets hired by Apple to uh, represent Apple's interests. So you're either working for the company directly or you're hired to work for the company or you work in nonprofit, including teaching, and or for nonprofit organizations and, and whatnot. And compensation obviously just runs the gamut from, you know, you pick it, it's, it's there. How does your job make the world a better place? I'm gonna take that personally as, I mean, how does my job make the world yeah. a better place? I, I, I don't know how, <laughs> you know, what Shakespeare has said about lawyers and all that kind of thing, but what I would do as a uh, lawyer in my role is that basically, as I said, I help companies comply with environmental laws and do so. And, and more than that, I help companies actually build projects that I think are good projects, but do so in, in a way that is not only environmentally compliant, but more often than not, environmentally beneficial. Environmental law, which, you know, Maybe a lot of people don't think about it this way, but environmental law really is the province of big business. You know, moms and pops, they, they drive the cars, but they, they're not the ones that worry about the tailpipe emissions from those cars. It's General Motors, Ford, Toyota, and so on. They're the ones that have to worry about whether or not those cars are polluting the environment. So it's working with, you know, big, really big business are the ones that are uh, supposed to are the ones that are being governed by environmental law. And they're the ones more, much more so than anybody else that has to comply and working with them to, to meet those compliance obligations is I think a good thing. So what's the most interesting project you've worked on? Probably the telecommunication cables coming across from Japan, China, and Southeast Asia, across the Pacific ocean, sometimes landing in Hawaii, sometimes not, and then landing in one of three places in California. And 
what's so interesting about that is just the idea as to how these telecommunication cables, which are about the size of a garden hose, getting laid across the ocean and in a way that the, the they're usually consortiums because these cables are so darn expensive. It's not one company, it's consortiums of major telecommunication companies like uh, AT&T, Verizon, China Telecom, Japan, you know, whatever. They come together to, 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 to lay these projects across the ocean and then landing in California and all the different kinds of issues that you have to deal with, especially landing in California, the environmental impact issues, the, the fishermen, the Native Americans, the, the impacts to biological subterranean habitat, I mean, subsea habitat, bringing it up on the beach, landing it. And these, these cables are really important. Just one of these cables about the size of a garden hose, and there's, there's a lot of them across the Pacific Ocean, carry more data in one cable than all of the satellites, telecom satellites, you know, that could circle the earth can carry. So, I mean, this world lives on fiber optic cables. Telephone satellites, I mean, uh, telecommunication satellites are important, but they're just kind of a, a very small part of, of how we communicate with each other around the world. And, and being part of all of that and learning about all of that and actually getting those cables landed and actually getting them lit up, like we say in the, in the industry. That was probably my most interesting, challenging and fun project that I worked on. And does that sort of job ever require you to fly to a different country or a continent? I wish, I wish, but no, it used to. And the reason why it doesn't, because we've been too successful in laying fiber optic cables. I can do anything, everything from my desk, you know, you know. I could, I could, I would have to view remote operated vehicles, ROV cameras that would fly along the bottom of the, uh, of the ocean, taking pictures of the habitat and the cable and where it's located and where the, and where it is and so on, or talk to and communicate with, you know, people across the ocean, you know, have these crazy conference calls where people in New Zealand, California, England, and Bermuda have to all be on at the same time. But the but the point is that's you can do all of that from your desk these days. It's 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 very rare to get out and kick the dirt like we used to do, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Have you ever flown in a private jet? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> well, for for a client. And and in, and in fact, it was a development project that I was working with, working on down in Mammoth Lakes, which is in Southern California. And I'd have to go down to the city of Mammoth, uh, Mammoth Lakes, every once in a while for these meetings. Contrary to what I was just telling you, where I do everything from, from my desk. You know, it's true, we do have to get out from time to time. So I'd have to go down to the city of Mammoth Lakes and my client, you know, it's just, it was most efficient just to have a private jet pick me up at Oakland at the private runway there and fly me down to Mammoth Lakes. And the coolest part about that was if you know where Mammoth Lakes, which is on the eastern side of Southern California in the mountains, is flying over Yosemite Park. At the time, it was, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah, I'm out of questions. I think Alex is too. Thank you for joining us. It was really fun talking to you. Sure, it was fun talking to you guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us today, Jim. As always, you can find additional details about Jim Burrow's path and being a lawyer in our show notes. 
Thank you to Jonas Bjornstad for music from his Waterboy album, Pixabay, Google, Descript, Anchor.fm, Patreon, and to you, our loyal listeners, for hanging with us for this episode of Job Talk. 